This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Kabir Sagal discusses his new book, Coined. Then PW Reviews editor Alex Crowley previews two hot nonfiction titles coming out in April. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by Nielsen BookScan. So there's a lot on the fiction side, so I'm going to jump right in. Go for it. Uh, Number three on the fiction hardcover list, we have Last One Home by Debbie McComber. Um, She's obviously a very big deal in the worlds of both romance and women's fiction. This one seems to be firmly on the women's fiction side Mm. of things. Um, A story about three sisters figuring out how to be family. And so that's at number three. Right. Um, going on down the list, uh, at number six, we have Endangered by C.J. Box. Um, this is the 15th novel featuring Joe Pickett, who's a Wyoming game warden. Um, I don't think of game wardens as being very crime-prone, but apparently... No, but maybe in Wyoming. Um, maybe. Maybe. Poachers? Right, uh, could be. So uh, in this case, actually, the crime is unrelated to his job. His foster daughter has been beaten and left for dead. Uh, And so he decides to investigate the case, find out who done it, and perhaps take justice Mm. into his own hands. And he does also have an environmental crisis on his hands. Those are poachers who slaughtered a flock of sage grouse, which is a species approaching endangered status. You were right about the poachers then. Yeah, it's, I I just, I knew it somehow. Um, So uh, we, our review says that some of the plot devices stretch credulity and the dialogue isn't as crisp as usual, but the story carries the day. So that's endangered. Uh, which is at number six. Mm -hmm. Continuing on down at number 10 is Cold Betrayal by J.A. Jantz. This is an Allie Reynolds novel, uh, the 10th novel about her. Uh, She's a former L.A. TV newscaster, now living in her hometown of Sedona, Arizona. Mm -hmm. Um, Newly married, lots of exciting stuff going on. And uh, this this is a real family drama involving her daughter-in-law, a pregnant teenager, uh, a lot of... Uh, exciting stuff going on at a very interpersonal level. And uh, we say in our review that uh, there's some horrendous violence that doesn't quite pass the believability test, but the prolific Jantz knows how to tell a story, and series fans will not be disappointed. Uh, and just a bit down further, number 12 is World Gone By by Dennis Lehane. Um, this is wrapping up the Joe Coughlin saga. Mm. began with The Given Day and Live By Night. And uh, we say it really concludes in fine fashion, set in 1942, featuring an Irish-American gangster who's been hanging out with a bunch of mafia bosses. Um, he thinks he's indispensable, so he's surprised to learn that there's a hit out on him. Mm. And uh, we say that the code he operates under allows him to navigate a path between brutality and charity, a shark among sharks. And this is a stunning conclusion to Joe Coughlin's journey. Great. And I just wanted to note one book that's a little further down than we usually go, down at number 20. Uh, But we gave it a starred review in PW. It's All the Old Knives by Olin Steinhauer. Uh, It's really one of those... uh, books it's all in the dialogue just two people sitting and having dinner but the intensity of the story is tremendous Uh, we call it a terrific standalone Mm. thriller Uh, and uh, it's a meeting between two former lovers and CIA colleagues uh, Henry Pelham and Celia Favreau Uh, she's retired and he really wants to wrap up a a case with significant international implications Uh, And so Henry still carries a torch for Celia, but their respective memories and the interrelationships in the office where they worked demonstrate how the personal and the professional are so often mixed. Uh, 
Uh, our review says there's great narrative energy in the thrust and counter thrust of the dinner conversation, as well as in the recreation of events in Vienna. And Steinhauer is a very fine writer and an excellent observer of human nature, shrewd about the pleasures and perils of spying. So the first print run on this is 150,000 copies. And uh, so far they've sold about 3,000 of those in the, right. in the first week out. So uh, a little bit under that number. Yeah, right. So uh, it's on its way, but it, it really it really deserves some attention. Sure, great. I'm glad you mentioned that. What you got on the nonfiction side? A new number one, which we don't always have. Uh, this is by Eric Larson, no stranger to the bestseller list. Uh, he's the author of uh, In the Garden of Beasts. Um, and this one is called Dead Wake, The Last Crossing of the Lusitania. Uh, with a narrative as smooth as the titular passenger liner, Larson delivers a riveting account of one of the most tragic events of World War One, which was Lusitania was sank in 1915 by a German U-boat. So we gave this a very nice review. In the end, we say Larson convincingly constructs his case for what happened and why. And by the end, we care about the individual passengers we've come to know. A blunt reminder that war is, at its most basic, a matter of life and death. And that's something that uh, Larson has always done with his with his books and his research, is really bringing the characters to life. Does a lot of research on that. At number five, uh, we start review for Stuart Scott's Every Day I Fight. He's the uh, Stuart Scott was the uh, ESPN Sports Center anchor and commentator. Um, he died this past January, and mm. he had a, um, a public and um, very outspoken battle uh, with cancer. This book he wrote with uh, writer Larry Platt. He actually finished before he died um, and then was edited. And uh, we gave this book a star review. He kind of originated in sports commentary, the booyah expression. And uh, his his book has the same verb and energy as his commentating does. He was really well respected uh, in the uh, sports world. At number 15, Robert D. Putnam's Our Kids, The American Dream in Crisis. We say this is an ambitious study in which he expands his analysis of America's social breakdown from 2001's bowling alone to 21st century upward mobility. Um, so this is uh, this is really a look at the American dream in crisis from that point. Uh, he states that though 95% of Americans still endorse equal opportunity in principle, increasing ghettoization of neighborhoods by class has yielded a two-tier social system and widening opportunity gap for children that's largely independent of cultural ideology. I'm quoting our review. At number 23, we have a book that's been getting a lot of attention on social media. George Hodgman is a former book editor. He's a writer. Uh, the name of the book is called Bettyville, and this is about his returning to a small-town home in Missouri to take care of his 90-year-old mother, his mother who's been widowed. So this is a look back on his life as he is with his mother. And like I said, this has been getting a lot of attention. And finally, at number 31, the uh, gentleman who's going to be our guest, uh, Kabir Sagal, his book coined The Rich Life of Money and How Its History Has Shaped Us. So do you want to give us a little bit of a preview of the book before we get into that interview, just so yeah. that our listeners know what to expect? Well, he's a an investment banker, and here he undertakes a broad survey of topics connected to money and its various functions. Uh, he talks about the, bi- the uh, uh, anthropology of debt. He talks about his views on currency of hard and soft. And basically, he's talking about the psychology of financial decision-making throughout the book. Fascinating. Great. All right. Well, thank you very much, Mark. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. So next up, as we just heard, Kabir Segal will tell us about the past and future of money. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Yasa Shabazz, author of X, a novel, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Kabir Sigal in the office with us. His new book is Coined, The Rich Life of Money and How Its History Has Shaped Us. Hey, Kabir. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So tell us about your book. Does money really make the world go round? <laughs> I sure think so. You know, I started working on Wall Street just a few months before the credit crisis began, and I was just shocked and alarmed with the devastation that it caused, not just in falling stock prices and people losing their jobs, but across America, people losing their homes, and uh, across the emerging world. You know, whatever happens in America tends to have knock-on effects what's happening in the emerging world. And I started with a question. I said, what is happening in the mind when we deal with money? 
because you know people act so irrationally with money. They act so bizarrely with money. And so I started digging at this, and I got into the field of neuroeconomics, basically mm. neuroscientists that look at financial decision making. And just the idea of making money increases your skin conductancy. There's an electrical current going through your skin and excitement. They've compared people who are making money to those uh, to brain scans of people who are high on cocaine. And what do they find? They find it's virtually the same. And by making money, do you mean actually trading or people who are in jobs with high-paying careers? Both. Both. Okay. I mean, the idea of making money is, is often the anticipation of making money is more activation in the brain than actually having the money itself, mm. like holding the money, right? So to, to, and so they look at also brain scans of people who are looking at positive stimulus, naked women, mm-hmm. um, negative stimulus, um, dead bodies, even neutral stimulants, which is like a uh, stapler or an office supply, mm-hmm. and then they show money. And money gets the most activation. And so when you ask, does money make the world go around? Sure, it makes our minds go around in, in a very excited and, and uh, almost imaginative way. So when you say how money has shaped us, you're talking about really changing the way our brains work, the way our cultures work. That's right. I mean, money has a physiological change on us, right? Like if you think about what's happening in our brain, um, as we change the forms of money from metal to plastic, um, paper, I mean, that's creating new neurological connections, right? The neurons are firing together and we're, we're coming up with a new idea. And what is money? But an idea of, an ex- of exchange. So in writing this book, I try to draw a circle around us and say money affects us from the biology and the psychology to the anthropology, even the theology. So um, in our review, we said that you were looking at fundamental biological exchanges, like the ways that uh, mitochondria operate. So how does that all tie in? Is is that another thing that's shaped by our use of money, or is it more of an analogy to the ways we exchange currency? It's more of an analogy. And I started this book by asking also, what is is money? It's an instrument of exchange. Mm -hmm. Or where does exchange come from? It's a biological question. So I went down to the Galapagos Islands. Why did I go there? And I start my book there because that's where Charles Darwin came up with his theory of evolution by natural selection. He was inspired by his experience there. And I went, I went around the islands looking at different ecosystems with marine biologists. Now, of course, this is very out there uh, when you're writing a book about money, but I wanted to get the source, the source of exchange. And when you go, I went snorkeling, and I saw the sea turtle. And in the book, the first picture is a sea turtle with his fins exposed, and they have five wrasse fish feeding on the sea turtle. What's happening there? Cleaning the, fe- the sea turtle. What's happening? That's an example of symbio- symbiosis. Right? The sea turtle is getting cleaned, and uh, the wrasse fish are ingesting the parasites for energy. Mm-hmm. Right? And so all across the natural world, um, different ecosystems, you see that energy is the currency of nature. Right? Like right now, we're in exchange uh, with... With a plant in the carbon cycle, oxygen is being there's a, oxygen is being sort of converted into carbon dioxide, and it's, it's we're in exchange with the, with the agriculture, right? And so, yeah, sure, it's out there. Humans are the only organisms that invent, that created money, but all organisms exchange. Even we exchange with other organisms, right? We have intestinal bacteria in our in our intestinal tract that are digesting food, and so what happens around um, you know when Homo sapiens be, um, arrive on the scene two hundred thousand years ago. Um, you have the expansion of the neocortex, right? And, and what well, we start realizing, we become aware that symbi- symbiosis is beneficial to our own survival, right? There's studies that show that people who live with others who are more social live longer. You know, living alone is analogous to, pack, uh, to smoking a pack of cigarettes right. on a consistent basis. Even living with the old people who live with the plant tend to be happier. So what, why is that? And so there's actually genes, I gone back, went back and looked at, uh, there's actually genes that, determine whether some people are more likely to be social or not. And so humans started to, to realize that um, exchange is beneficial, and we created tools to support that. One of those tools is called money. So are, are there people who are more financially introverted than extroverted, people who are less inclined toward this sort of exchange? I mean, how, how does it yeah. work on the psychology end? Actually, there's some great studies, um, genetic studies, where they, again, neuroeconomists, they've looked at uh, identical twins, and then they've separated them, and those have been separated for a while, and they, they find that they invest in a similar manner, hmm. looking to invest in stocks, bonds, equities, or cash, and they sort of allocate the money in a similar manner. Now, of course, genetics is not the only thing but, um, that matters, but uh, there's also studies that show there's this one gene, and there's two variants of it. And those who possess this one variant of it are more likely to be risk-averse, which means they have fewer credit lines and higher FICO scores. Mm -hmm. Those who have the other variant of the the gene, just the opposite, they're more risk-seeking, have more credit lines, and they're um, 
they have high, they have lower FICO scores. And so they found that the gene, the variant of the genes, I mean, what FICO scores go, go between 350 to 800, right? And the genes can determine up to 90 points of that, which is statistically significant. Wow. Yeah. And so obviously the, you have to trade carefully here. So the neuroscientists, neuroeconomists say, listen, there are people that, you know, acted differently than their genes. Knowledge can triumph over, over genetics for sure. But it goes to show you that, you know, maybe in the future, when you look at your credit score, maybe there's a place that says, uh, how, did, how did this person's spending deviate from expected behavior based on their genes? That's a little wow. creepy. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Can you give us an example of, of, of different kinds of people with different kinds of credit scores? Say, so with credit scores, you've got, you know, your, what is considered very good is, you know, the bottom line of very good is the upper 600s, right. I think. Uh, average is about lower 600. Mm-hmm. And then excellent is upper 700. Sure. I mean, that's, that's exactly right. And yeah. so, but you, you shouldn't get too hard on yourself. You can always say, mom, dad, is your gene pool. That's making, right. me, making me spending this, <laughs> right. spending this away. Yeah. Um, so you, you were looking at um, evolution mm-hmm. and uh, in your book, you use the, the phrase, the evolution of cooperation. Um, so how, how did cooperation evolve within human cultures? Yeah. So uh, Axelrod uh, looks at this. He wrote this paper and book in the 80s called Evolution of Cooperation. And it was one of the most cited studies in the uh, history of, I guess, social science. And what he did, he took prisoner's dilemma, which is sort of this, you know, this game theory idea of separating two people get captured and they get questioned separately. And he asked people from all walks of life, all different disciplines, evolutionary biologists, um, scientists, psychologists, to submit strategies for a computer tournament that plays prisoner's dilemma. So everyone submitted these strategies. And the one that kept on winning against all others was called tit for tat, tit for tat. What does that mean? It means that on the first iteration of the game, you're supposed to cooperate with someone else. And then on subsequent times, you're supposed to reciprocate what someone else is doing, right? Mm -hmm. And so this one kept on going, kept on going. And this sort of goes in line, Richard Dawkins, the great, you know, evolutionary thinker, uh, says this works on on the gene level. Genetically, we're cooperating with each other in order to perpetuate our gene pool. Right. What is when, it, when a sperm hits an egg, essentially, that's an exchange where basically two organisms, two entities are coming together to create symbiogenesis. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you look throughout the human world, what happens is what's the first thing that gets traded? One of the first things that gets traded is food. It's energy. Energy is, is the currency. So when you're out in your caveman, let's say a prehistoric time, you're out in your caveman and you're going out to the hunts and you catch some big game. And you bring it back. Well, if you don't share that with your tribe, like the day will come when you're hungry and you will not be invited back. Right. So this idea of reciprocity is so ingrained in us, not just in humans, but across other primates as well. Hmm. So how did this book come to you? And I want to talk a little bit more about the book in a bit, but how did this book come to you? Was it, you talked to us about the uh, being in the Galapagos Islands. Was that when you were researching the book, when you already had it in mind, or was that what kind of uh, spurred the book? The Galapagos was a, was a later addition to the research process, yeah. but look, my, my job takes me around the world, and, uh, or, or it did at least, and, and I traveled to over 25 countries uh, looking at different emerging markets. And I thought I had a pretty unique perspective of looking at how different countries deal with money. And so I, I, you know, agreed to write this book. I thought it'd be interesting to have a different perspective. I certainly didn't think we needed an, another book on the credit crisis. And so, you know, for example, I was in, I was in Japan, and um, I brought some delicious fruit for my friend. And uh, I said, listen, here's some delicious grapes. And he said, Kabir, I cannot accept these. You know, I said, well, why not? And he said, well, you know, I'll never be able to reciprocate this favor. I'll no, never be able to repay this favor. And the word arigato in Japanese loosely translates to this difficult thing, right? Sumimasen, another word for thank you, means I'm so sorry, right? And so I started to see there's a cultural understanding, different cultural understandings of what is money and what is debt. Like in a Japan, Japanese department store, you cannot, um, you, you cannot tie your own presents. They have to do it for you because, because if you do a poor job, it'll reflect poorly on them. You go to a Japanese wedding, you have to tie the ribbon perfectly because if you tie it too loosely, you don't think the uh, marriage will last, right? On Valentine's Day, Women buy what's called choco and giri, obligation chocolate, for men who've, who've, who've helped them over the years. And then the men have to reciprocate and, uh, and give another obligation chocolate to the women. Why do I bring this up? Because as I was traveling, I was like, interesting, I would be in Japan one day, I would be in another country, 
And I thought maybe maybe someone should write a book about how money is, is culturally defined across different cultures. And so you talked about how uh, uh, genes determine how, perhaps how we spend. Uh, you talked a little bit about the biology. So just, just taking from your perspective, someone who's traveled, you were uh, until recently a banker, investment banker at J.P. Morgan. Um, how do different cultures deal with money? And how is that uniform with us all, or if it's not? Yeah. Look, the history of money um, tends to be uh, sort of a myth, uh, which is bartering led to money. Mm-hmm. You find this in Adam Smith's work. You find this in Aristotle that, you know, people, when you were trading with someone, um, they had, well, what happens if they don't have what you really want? And you, right. So you create money. And so the anthropologists go back and they, pretty emphatic statement, they say, no, well, actually, no, no place has ever existed that's relied exclusively on barter, right? It's debt. It's social debt. And so it's interesting to look across the world in these different societies like Japan and look how people perceive debt as like, just as like a mile is a measure or a kilometer is a measure of distance. Money may be a measure of debt, for example. So uh, how do different places think about debt? Look, there's one Wall Street CEO that in his suit pocket, he keeps a list of people on one side who owe him and on the other side, people who owe him or people that he owes. And so this idea of a gift economy is very revealing of the countries that, that I would go to. Um, I look at uh, Native American communities in the Pacific Northwest, for example. And what do I find? This uh, practice called a potlatch. Mm-hmm. Not to be confused with a potluck, but a potlatch. Basically, you hold a potlatch when there's a new king or a new chief. You invite all your friends, your family, and then you lavish everyone with gifts. And wh- wh- Why do you do that? Because you're, you're almost trying to shame people, saying, look, look, at, look at you. I... I have so much wealth and riches, I don't even need it. And you try to outdo each other. Mm. And this idea of gift-giving, of shame-giving, of, of giving. And so it's a very different cultural look at possession. Like in, in the Western society, when you give a gift, you're supposed to retain it. You're supposed to put it on your wall and look at mm. it. In, Eastern, some, in some Pacific Island communities and Native American culture, to, to receive is to give. Because um, in, in, in these communities, a gift has a spiritual value. And if you don't give it on, you sort of squelch that spiritual value mm-hmm. of it. And so the gift, there's a gift cycle. The gift economy, you have to keep on making the gift go round and round and round because that's what sustains and gives contours to society. So I was wondering where the name of your book came from because uh, when I think of it, because I'm so immersed in words, I think of coining a phrase, of coming up with something new. Uh, but coined also obviously has the financial meaning. Right. I wanted something that would, would do well on Twitter. <laughs> so it was unique, but, uh, but, also, um, but also something that has sort of double meaning. Obviously, the coins, a lot of, uh, to coin an idea, to coin a phrase. What, I'm, what am I trying to do this, with this book? I'm trying to coin a multiplicity of ways to look at money, because it sure affects us in so many different ways. And throughout the world, I always spend a day or two, or an extra hour or so, meeting with coin collectors. And so the end of my trip end of this book um, culminates in like a geographic, geographical safari looking from meeting with coin collectors in Vietnam, New York, mm. uh, the Philippines, Sri Lanka. And so I wanted something that sort of brought together both meanings, the physicality of money, the material being, and also the idea of money to coin, to coin a new way of looking at it. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Kabir Sagal, who's the author of Coined. You mentioned debt and that money is a way of um, sort of describing or holding debt. So talk to us a little bit about that, because I think, especially with all the conversations that go on about the national debt, it's easy to think of debt, to, to see debt as like this big abstract thing. Right. So <clears throat> the first type of debt that's created, um, we talked about as evolutionary, you know, reciprocating um, favor for each other. That's an idea of social debt. But financial debt gets invented somewhere around 4,000, 5,000 BC. 
there are financial loans, you know, that are denominated in silver and barley. And actually the word interest, mas, means goat in Sumerian, uh, goat or calf. And people will give out loans based in livestock because it was, all, it was something you could repay more easily because you could just, you know, have an offspring in your herd and, and give that as, as interest. And so what happens is um, debt becomes really the primary currency of the world. It's not, in, it's not until about 700 B.C., until coins are invented in Lydia, Western Turkey. So what does that mean? It means that there's like several thousands of years of history, monetary history, mm-hmm. where like money is really loans, right? Yeah, sure, some people were trading bullion, but it wasn't, it wasn't money how we think about it. So it's important to see that debt is really the primary currency of the world. And so different places think about debt in certain, pla- in, in certain ways. I mean, there's a great Italian proverb that says, um, I don't do favors that just accumulate debts. Because what happens when you, when you give a gift to someone or when you do a favor for someone, you're not just tying that gift with ribbons and uh, wrapping paper, you're tying that person to an obligation, right? And so increasingly you see when you overlay a social debt with a financial one, you can start to justify all kinds of uh, terrible behavior. You can control other people because you now can enforce that debt on them, that obligation. So throughout the world, throughout history, it's really a, you can look at history in many different ways. You can also look at it through the prism of debtors and creditors. There's always a struggle between people who owe each other, mm-hmm. and so all the different like in in ancient Greece, ancient Rome, the debtors would be like, man, like there's there's debt slavery. What is slavery but a form of debt? Right, you owe, you're obligated to someone. Even the state of Georgia, where I'm from, was created as a debtor's refuge, right, by James mm-hmm. Oglethorpe mm-hmm. because. Uh, they were trying to bring the people who were uh, James Oglethorpe sat on sat on a parliamentary committee looking at the abusive behavior in debt prisons. Think about Charles Dickens' um, debt prisons, right? And he's like, "Well, I want to create a new place where debtors can go." So Georgia was a debt a debt refuge, debtors refuge. So debt is this interesting thing because people often try to control it, and then it becomes very um, damaging for society. Tell us how various cultures throughout your travels that you've seen and the research you've done handle debt. Uh, specifically, I mean, you talked about the uh, the you gave the anecdote about the uh, uh, the Japanese businessman who wouldn't take your yeah. um, your fruit. But how do Americans deal with debt, and how do other cultures? I use in the book. I talk about um, Canada and Montreal, and sometimes the gift economy giving debts is too too much. Um, there's a, there's a, uh, a day called Moving Day in Montreal. And every day, every, the same day, there's historical reasons for this, but people move on the same day. And you're supposed to go to your friends and family and you ask them, will you help me move, right? And even Labatt Breweries has beer commercials on TV about moving day, right? And you buy some beer, have some pizza. But um, there's, a lot of, there's some reports that people uh, don't want to ask their friends and family because their friends may flake on them, um, then they feel let down, their family may not come through for them. Uh, if, if they do help them and their friends do come and help move, then they're obligated to help them in future cycles. So um, there's some reports of people feeling, feeling that they want to escape from the gift economy, escape from this ideal of debt. And where do they go? They go to the marketplace. Right. Where it's, in, where it's you know, you just go and you pay someone and then it's done. And so in Western society, oftentimes, that the marketplace offers a way to cut that cord with other people, but it also allows you some anonymity. Right, you can just do the deal and be done with it. Imagine if you went to a Starbucks and they gave you a, a, a coffee for free. You may feel more obligated to go back there. Maybe not, but you might you might be, feel more obligated to the barista to keep going there. But if you just pay him, the, the relationship is over. Right. And what about other cultures? How would they handle it differently? I say you spent some time in Japan. Yeah. Well, Japan also. I mean, this idea of debt is is. Uh, very, very, very strong. Like I mentioned the word arigato being, this is too difficult. Even there's this idea in Japan called on. Remember your own. And it's, it's this sort of this burden that you feel and you carry around with you. In the 1940s, for example, the only way you could repay your own to the emperor was a kamikaze mission, was to give your own life. The only way you can repay your own to your family of being, being a child to them is to have your own children. Right, your father-in-law is called Father Ngiri. It's basically obligation to my father-in-law or uh, mother Ngiri. So these ideas of debt are embedded within Japanese within Japanese culture to a very very strong extent. And do Americans have uh, any more problem with debt than other countries? How would they approach it? 
Well, from a from a, um, a financial side, yes. I mean, look at the problem we had during the credit crisis. Even right. still, Americans spend uh, had a negative sa- savings rate, meaning they spent more money, the right. high credit card bills, and it's a problem uh, because the this consumerism it's uh, it's it's been sort of ingrained upon us, whether through advertising or just consumer behavior, that it's okay to uh, to spend, spend, spend without sort of compunction, and. Um, from a financial perspective, yeah, Americans, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to write this book was to, to increase our financial literacy. That money is really intruding on our on our lives, is um, and we don't even think of it. And that gets back to this idea that this example I said about someone not using the moving society. Maybe Americans are so likely to go into the market economy mm-hmm. and take on debt that they they really often can't repay. How much does it affect things if you're in a place where there's a lot of hard currency versus abstractions like credit cards? Because I know that when I turned 18 and I had my little, you know, $500 limit credit card or whatever, I just thought that was like $500 somebody gave me and I got Mm -hmm. to go spend it. And it took me a while to figure out that that was actually real money that I was spending just through a little piece of plastic. Sure. Well, it's not just you and the consumer governments have this issue, right? So uh, ever since... um, paper currency was born, and I go into the history of paper money in the book, um, the governments tend to borrow a lot. And so why do, why do governments like to borrow money? It's because that usually devalues the currency, inflates the price of things. And so when you borrow money and there's inflation, when you pay the money back, the money's worth less, hmm. right? So the United States government spending you know, has billions, trillions of dollars worth of debt, but as inflation continues and they're trying to get inflation up, the money that they're going to repay back is worth less on a purchasing power a purchasing um, power level. So people who borrow want inflation, right? And so to your personal example, look, not looking at credit cards or looking at cash can have very uh, tough consequences. Apple computers got into a lot of trouble for this. You know, when you use your iPhone and uh, you pay for something for like a new game, it saves your credit card information in there, mm-hmm. right? And so a lot of kids would be racking up huge bills, in um, in games and in songs, and Apple had to pay. I, don't, I forget what the amount was, but probably tens of millions of dollars in a class action lawsuit because it was too easy to pay. Mm-hmm. Right. So there are there are. I mean, they, they create these things for convenience, but it can tip over and, and be really problematic as well. So you talk a little bit about currency, specifically hard currency. Where do you see it going, and what are the pitfalls or? What are its saving graces? What are the benefits? Of hard currency? Yeah. Where do you see it going, I guess? I mean, hard currency is, uh, I don't think it's coming back anytime soon. Uh, because in the 1970s, um, Richard Nixon took us off the gold standard. Um, and the reason why uh, we, go, we, we increasingly we, we're looking at more paper money is because when you go through times of economic trouble, recessions, right, you want to be on a monetary system that you can expand, you know, to make people feel wealthier to have quantitative easing. And if you're on a, on a gold standard, if you're on hard money, you can only really expand in a limited way because there's only a fixed amount of gold or whatever the rare metal is. So um, I see throughout in the future, I don't think hard currency is coming back uh, only in your collectible drawers that it'll be worth something unless there's some kind of, you know, huge economic um, uh, crisis and the institutions fail, like mm-hmm. the, the Fed or the banks. Right. And then you'll be hoarding gold bullion, and uh, then we probably have other things to worry about as and, well. And bottles of whiskey. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> go go all the way back. Yeah. Um, so you're an investment banker. Uh, you talk about ethics of money, uh, and it's also its artistic function in expressing national identity. So you know, how, how far do you get into those kind of nebulous concepts? <laughs> well, in terms of the ethics, I look at, um, in the book, about the connection between money and religion. And I was in India, in Calcutta, and I went to Mother Teresa's home for the dying and destitute. And I saw this, there's maybe 50 or 60 lepers who are in this room. It's really where people go and they die. And I found this, uh, this boy, 17, 17, 16, 17 years old, a teenager from France, and he was volunteering there. And I asked him, why are you here? Um, and he said, I'm here because of what the gospel teaches. And he said, you know, though people are uh, here are poor, they're rich in spirit. And I went back and I read the Gospels, and I, it's pretty clear, 80, 8 of the 10 parables in the book of Matthew, Jesus talks about, are about money or wealth, right? You look at other um, uh, scriptures, 
in the Quran, 83, over 80 verses having to do with money. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, full of uh, what to do with money. Mm-hmm. Hinduism. So, like, okay, so across all the faiths, there's a sort of, um, there's almost these diktats of how you should live with money. You know, how you, deter- how you use money can maybe determine the fate of your soul. You know, Jesus says, like, it's easier for, uh, for, a rich, for, to, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? So, when you look at the ethics, you asked about banking. So, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about, says some very clear things. He says, um, do not lay up treasures in heaven, um, on earth, but in, but in, but in heaven. And uh, he goes on to say something that the theologians have been trying to work out for a while. And to paraphrase him, he says something like, you know, your body is a lamp and do not darken it, right? Hmm. And then he goes on to talk about money again. And so what is he talking about? I mean, theologians think he's talking about greed. Hmm. Because greed is something you don't see in yourself. You see it in other people. There's a a preacher here in New York, uh, Keller, uh, Tom Keller. He said he gives a sermon on the seven deadly sins. Um, one sermon a week, and his wife said, listen, when you give your sermon on greed, nobody will show up. And sure enough, very few people showed up. Mm-hmm. Because greed is something you see someone else has more, uh, has a bigger car, has a bigger, uh, better job, another job description. And so we're all driven in banking, not just in banking, but just all across life. There's, there's an evolutionary logic, which is more is better. More, 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 right? But across all the faiths, and I, I looked at all of them, and I try to distill them in the book, there's a, there's a paradoxical logic which is less is more, right? It's important to detach from it. And I found the most inspiring of, um, or the most subtle of this logic in Hinduism, Hinduism has four aims of life. Mm-hmm. One of them is artha, which is the accumulation of wealth. You're supposed to go out and make money. It's your duty to make money, to take care of your family. Mm. But in pursuing wealth accumulation, you, you will, there will come a time in your life when it will leave you hollow. It will leave you looking for more. And that will lead you to the end goal, which is moksha, or liberation from it. And this can correspond to periods of your life. When you're early in life, you're making money. When you're about to leave, you, um, you try to renounce the money, detach from it, because you certainly don't take it with you. Mm-hmm. Or even periods of the day. In the morning, you're making your job, you're having a great interview. But when you go home at night, you should detach from it and do something that's more of a spiritual calling. So that was what I looked at it within the book of the relationship between money and religion. So you uh, have recently left J.P. Morgan. You're no longer an investment banker. And talking about what you were just talking about, uh, what are your plans? What are, you, what are you thinking about doing? What made you decide to leave it? Well, I mean, writing this book was uh, an ordeal, you know, between banking and, and writing. I was having to write in that early in the morning, late at night, on the weekends. So I was kind of just fried after, after so many years of, of researching. But I'm really passionate about the mission of this book, which is helping Americans get more uh, more aware of financial literacy. And I've just been on the book tour trying to spread the mission, mission of uh, and the message of this book, which is to think differently about money. And so that's what my focus is right now. And so how can you get Americans to think differently? If you had something, one, one little bit of advice for them, us? <laughs> well, <now. laughs> besides reading this book, um, no, I, th- I think it's just to be more aware of how um, money influences our financial decisions, right? And it's having an effect on us in our subconscious, even when we're not thinking about a quick story, like a quick example, when you're outside on a sunny day eating, you're more likely to tip more because the weather makes it feel a little better, mm-hmm. Right. Than whereas if you sit inside, then went back and looked at, at the stock market over the last 80 years. We have really good data on, on weather patterns, really good data on stock market prices. Looked at 26 different countries. What did they find? Th- on sunny days, markets were up an annualized 25% over cloudy days. So why do I bring, bring this example up? Because it, you know, we, when we use money, we spend money, it's not always our rational selves. It's so many different forces governing our financial decisions. And I try to unpack that uh, thoroughly throughout the book. We've been talking with Kabir Segal, and you can find his book, Coined, in stores right now. Kabir, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Reviews editor Alex Crowley talks about two excellent April nonfiction titles, so stay tuned. I'm Kevin Sessoms, author of I Left It on the Mountain, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Reviews editor Alex Crowley is here to tell us about two interesting upcoming critiques of modernity. Hi, Alex. Hello. So those are some long words. They are. Um, what, what, does this, what does this mean for those of us not steeped in that end of the, the book world? Well, that's... That's sort of my loose interpretation of how to connect what are two separate but fascinating books that happen to have a, a bunch of overlaps, thematic overlaps. Um, to start with, both authors are named Philip. Both authors are named <laughs> Philip. <laughs> and um, one word titles. They're both European. They have one word titles. I guess we'll start with the first one, uh, Fracture by Philip Blom, um, who's an Austrian commentator. And this is a, it's called Fracture, Life and Culture in the West, 1918 to 1939. Blom had done a previous book called The Vertigo Years, which is covered the, the, the years leading up to World War One, And now this covers the interwar period. The second book by Philip Ball, who's a prominent science writer, um, is called Invisible, The Dangerous Allure of the Unseen, which is a, a broader history of the concept of invisibility. I guess I'll start with Fracture. Talking about a critique of modernity, I'd have to say that what he approaches here is uh, what happened after World War I, a misunderstood period. We have uh, sort mm-hmm. of ideas that, oh, it was a, a more peaceful time, or you know, people were struggling with the aftermath, but there wasn't an overt war. But this takes the other stance that people knew as soon as the war was over that more trouble was ahead. You know, some people even called it a, uh, you know, this is Europe's next 30 years war. Mm. Um, so he goes through each year mm. picking a, a prominent event and giving the context of, you know, the social context, political context of whatever that uh, major event might be. Mm. And he brings it forward and back in time. So it's an interesting way of looking at individual events and then getting a broader picture of that period what i thought was cool between the the two books is that uh, a good deal of the material in philip ball's book happens around this this same period particularly in the scientific advancements so a critique of modernity in that coming out of the the big enlightenment project that had overtaken europe the previous 150 or so years culminated in World War One, in which Europe basically destroyed itself from the inside and nobody knew how to react to the, those developments. There's a lot of disillusionment and wondering, you know, what are we doing with these tools we have, with these ideas we have? We have these grand ideologies and they all seem to have failed us. So it's a, it's a book of big ideas and it looks at the big ideas through individual events. Invisible, on the other hand, takes a broad view of a very specific topic, invisibility, um, and he, he brings it back to, to, to myth through you know, the ancient era, the different conceptions of it, how it plays, how it plays out, and then through the Middle Ages when you know, people had books of magic and spells and mm. then gets through to the Enlightenment and conceptions of it change and it becomes a a different sort of concept a, a different idea is he talking about cultural invisibility like you know the the thing where it's just easy to overlook someone or something that doesn't look like it belongs there there there's that element in a lot of ways there is the real invisibility of uh, the, uh, of something that physically can't be seen it disappears mm-hmm. so you know the ancient invisibility spells and mm-hmm. things like that and it it brings it Back to the concept that, you know, what happens when someone's invisible? They can get power, wealth, or sex, anything that they want if they're invisible. So, you know, there are cultural taboos that develop around this concept. And so in becoming invisible is a way to transcend those, those taboos. Yeah. But it changes over time, like the goals of invisibility. Like, why do you want to achieve this thing? And can you? How, like, how do you go about doing it? So a lot of occult comes into play. But in the modern era, you know, it becomes taken over by science in the post-Enlightenment era. So it, it's almost a, a military tool in, on, on the one hand. Mm-hmm. Um, camouflage comes up as a way of not an inability to see, 
but an inability to distinguish. Right. I would think that not being seen in society is an undercurrent in the later parts of the book. Um, It's just so interesting because I'm used to invisibility being a negative. Um, If you think about something like, for example, the concept of bisexual invisibility and discussions of queer people that are very limited to gay and lesbian. Um, And, you know, if you talk to someone bisexual about bisexual invisibility, they'll be like, that's a bad thing. I don't want to be invisible. I want to be seen. Um, So I'm, I'm fascinated by this notion of invisibility as a thing to be pursued as a place of power. Right, and that also aligns with uh, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, mm-hmm. um, right. the racial implications of, of going through society and not being noticed or paid attention to um, or being actively ignored. He doesn't quite go there. Uh, he does get into H.G. Uh, Wells's Invisible Man. He looks at it in a way that's slightly different in that here's a man who finds a way to become invisible, and it causes, instead of finding that that power Mm -hmm. it causes no end of problems um and that's his own way of critiquing the 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 technological progress the the or the promise that so many i I don't want to implicate all scientists but science promise makes a lot of promises and technology makes a lot of promises and he is able to to pick apart like how do our desires Mm -hmm. for this thing play out in real time. And you had mentioned that both authors seem to uh, draw upon H.G. Wells. Mm-hmm. And how is that? How does the other Philip do it? And uh, just remind us of the books as you're talking about each of the films. Oh, sure. <laughs> in Blom's book, uh, Fracture, Wells comes up because he was writing so prominently around this period. Mm-hmm. Um, and he discusses him as a cultural commentator. Uh, one of the bigger ones is comes up in um, his review of Fritz Lang's Metropolis. And for people who are familiar with that film, it was billed as a, this grand, the greatest German film ever made. And it was just kind of a disaster. It's still, I think, a cult It's a hit. glorious disaster. Yeah, and, and <laughs> it, one of those things where it tried to do the big thing in every way, and it kind of failed in all of those ways. So um, there's there's a lot that comes out of that and, and but what Wells calls it um, he said in one eddying concentration almost every possible foolishness cliche platitude and muddlement about mechanical progress and progress in general served up with a sauce of sentimentality that it's all its own so you can see how he went right to the core of what the, the, the movie did and, and Wells comes up again in his skewering of science in the Invisible Book and this is a man who is well versed in the material he and most people know him as a writer of science fiction in his own right and here he is acting as one of the most astute cultural commentators of his day mm-hmm. art commentators too it's just a, a coincidence that i read these two books around the same time but they had so many points of intersection so just curious because i know we as reviews editors get books in um and sometimes the book grabs us right away just by the either by the author by the subject matter um or sometimes it's our reviewer once we get the review back that causes us that makes us you know look at it at what point with these two books did did uh did they grab your attention they both came in with really glowing reviews Mm -hmm. from the reviewer right but as i started to pick through them they just sort of like, oh, this is pretty fascinating, and and you start reading, and it just sort of snowballs from there. I know Ball's work a bit more than I know Blom's work, but now it's like I want to go back and read all of their stuff because mm-hmm. uh, a lot of it is has its own um, links. Their own their own works have links right. with each other. Of course, Philip Ball picks a fascinating topic with invisibility that you can go many directions with. Um, I think what's one of the 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 biggest pluses of the book is in an age that, as I mentioned before, makes so many technological promises, scientific promises, there's always got to be someone who steps in and says, hey, we got to have a little bit of perspective on this. And he does that here, saying, like, what can we achieve? We should have hope that these things can make our lives better. But also, we have to be wary of why people are even want to do certain things in the first place. What are they going to, how are they going to benefit? What are they going to get from it? And what does it say about our own society that we're going all these lengths to do these particular things that ties in a 
also with Blom's book in that he looks at this whole period and throughout he admits that you can't make direct analogies between now and then, but it was a period of great uncertainty and uh, people were grasping at anything that would ground them that, that was solid. And in his epilogue, uh, he makes the great point that we're going through a similar period. There's a lot of technological flux. You know, we've, we see conflict in the world constantly and we see it more than we do because we're more exposed to it. Um, but also in that since the, he says since 2008, so the, the financial collapse, it's thrown people's lives into flux again. And he hazards against making direct connections to, oh, history repeating itself, but what can we learn from there? How can we examine the ideologies that are present? You know, he, he has a, a great critique of free market ideology for being another ideology. It, out, it outlasted fascism and communism to an extent, but it doesn't make it any less dangerous. And we're seeing the problems with it. We see the dark underside of it. Uh, we have to be aware that we don't respond to these things in the same way that we did. And um, the book opens up a lot of questions more than it has answers. He's asking mm. the same questions that any of us would, I think. Who's publishing these books, and uh, when are they coming up? Uh, they're both uh, in April. Um, Invisible is from University of Chicago, and Fracture is from Basic. Mm. And who's the intended audience? Are these, I mean, they sound kind of dense, but not necessarily academic. No, they're, they're pretty, uh, I think, popularly oriented. Um, both of them, neither of them, or I should say neither of them are academic um, in the sense that there's uh, like, you know, unfamiliar terminology or anything. You know, in a science book, you're going to encounter weird concepts and terms but sure. it's not it's nothing that like you know it's not advanced physics he's talking about being able to see and not see and mm -hmm. um he's also you know ball's a, a great writer and a great popularizer of science he he knows the material and he his whole goal is to bring it to people right. who are laypersons blom is uh he he's on uh, austrian national radio so he knows the ins and outs of getting his message across to a wide group of people, you know, so he he's able to distill complex political phenomena or social phenomena into ways that people instinct, you know, he's just telling a story, and they're both telling stories, they're both great storytellers, the, the narratives are really tight, um, and they're engaging, so. Great. That sounds great. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Alex. Oh, thank you. Always nice to have you on the show. And now, a final word from our sponsors. Hi, my name is Joshua Davis. I'm the author of Spare Parts, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another exciting author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 